The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Acts chapter 3 this evening. So we've been in the life of Peter for quite a while, and we've seen in Peter's life what it seems like failure after failure after failure. And even at times when it looks like he's getting it, very, very soon after that, he falls again. He messes up again. It's like, come on, Peter, at some point you've got to put this thing together. At some point you've got to just start stringing together a few victories, you know? It can't just be a show of hope and then this massive loss once again. And that's what I love about the book of Acts. Because we see how the gospel transformed Peter into this guy who was always failing, into a man who, for the most part, lived a life of victory for Christ. And even though it was painful, even though he suffered, he was willing to do all of those things and go through that and have victory because he now had the Spirit of God living inside of him. And he now was living by the Spirit's power and not by his own power. And that's really the difference in the life of Peter. And so this is going to be another encouraging story for us as we look at a message I've entitled, The Story of a Beggar Giving Alms. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 1. We'll read all the way until verse 16. And I think our text kind of flows this, follows this outline. It is, we'll see the tribulation of the man, we'll see his transformation, and finally we'll see the proclamation of the gospel. And so let's look at Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the tribulation of of this man. Verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Here's Peter and John. We know that it's been a certain amount of time. We don't know exactly how long since Pentecost has happened, but they've stayed in Jerusalem. And not only have they stayed in Jerusalem, they're following the normal custom of most Jewish people. If you lived in Jerusalem and you were able to, then you would try and go to the temple in the morning and the temple in the afternoon. And this was the afternoon time, and it was a time of prayer. And so during this time, they would go in, they would pray, and it was during this time that the priest, twice a day, would offer sacrifices. So it's the ninth hour, it's 3 p.m. They're not there because they've decided, hey, we're going to do church evangelism at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, every afternoon. They're there because they're just following their normal daily routine. This is what they did. They'd go to the temple at around 3 o'clock, That's what most Jewish men did, that they would go there to pray. Verse number two, And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. I want to give you a few details about the temple that will hopefully help paint a picture of what's going on here. So we have, we have the temple, and the temple itself, the, the whole area that was kind of considered the temple, was a massive, massive area. It was around 33 acres. Okay, so you've got to imagine this church property, all the way back to the creek, all the way to the road, and then from golf course to field, times three. And you'd have gates all and walls all around this whole area, and people would come in from all over the world, all over that area of the world, to worship in this temple. It was just a beautiful, beautiful temple. They had to take a mountain and actually build it up on the side so they could make it as big as as Herod wanted it to be. And so they they had this temple, and they they come in, and the first court, the first area, open area, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so 
all people from all over the city were allowed to come there. Some people would come and they would sell animals for the offering and sell doves. And uh, there's money changers going on there because you weren't allowed to take certain types of money into the temple. And so that was going on all in this court of the Gentiles. Then you'd go through this, this, these little gates. And once you got through these little gates, it was called the court of Israel. And all Israelites were allowed to assemble in there. But it still wasn't the main court building. Dave, can you pull up those pictures? This might give you a little bit better idea. So this whole area here, this open area, is all the court of the Gentiles. And this whole thing is around 33 acres large. If you see this small little gate area, inside there is the court of Israel. And then if you walk through this gate, you'd come into the court of the women. Past that, around the edges here, around these edges, was the court of the men. This area was the court of the priests. The altar would be sacrificed right there where my red thing is. And then this was the holy place, and inside the holy place was the holy of holies. Okay, so that's how, I guess, the temple works. Now, if you want to go to the next slide, Dave, um, this gives you a little bit more close-up on this. So there are two ideas of where this man was sitting. This whole area would be the court of the Israelites. He was, he was inside here. One belief is that he was sitting maybe in this gate. And so this would be the gate that would lead to the court of women. But more scholars believe that he was probably standing in this gate. And the gate in our text is referred to as the beautiful gate, but the beautiful gate didn't actually exist as, a, as an official gate name. So this is the gate that people just called the beautiful gate. Can anybody guess why they might call it the beautiful gate? Because it was beautiful. That's, he's a sharp, that's why he's our pastor, really. He knows all the Bible answers. I'm not, Jesus? <laughs> no, no, pastor, it's not Jesus. And so, so what happens is, these people come in, and they come into the temple, and they're coming to worship. And as they're coming to worship, they have these massive gates. Now, the, the Nicanor Gate, which is the gate that leads from the, the court of the women into the, where they did the, the sacrifices. That gate was around 45 feet high and 22 feet wide. So we're talking a gate that is at least double the, the height of our church. and as wide as this, I mean, wider than this auditorium. I mean, it's, it's a massive, massive gate. So you have two doors. Josephus said that it took over 20 men to close the doors every evening. Just huge, heavy doors. And the, the doors are laden with bronze. And what I'm trying to tell you is these doors were so beautiful. They got the name beautiful. When you looked at these doors, you would be amazed at man's ability to create something so beautiful. Just the ingenuity, the creativity of it, uh, it's just so beautiful. And then at the bottom of this gate, as you walk in and you see this, this beautiful structure, you have this man. The man's more than 40 years old. And he's been sitting here probably day after day. We know that people around the temple, they recognized him. He's sitting just on the, on the edge of this gate. And he's sitting there like he does every day, begging. Because he can't walk, because he's lame. And I... When I think about that, and I think about this picture, I get this, this beautiful thing man has created, and then this creation of God that's kind of gone wrong. You know, I mean, his, his, his body is certainly feeling the effects of the curse. But you know what's amazing? I mean, we, we might, at first glance, look at that and be amazed at the gate and think less of this man. But the truth is, that man 
the creativity, the, the beauty, the ingenuity that went into creating that man, though he is paralyzed, is far, I mean, it's infinitely greater than what it took to create those gates. Right? The complexity of that man, to think, I mean, we, we often, because we're so used to experiencing life, we don't ever step back and just consider the beauty of it. Do you ever think what it takes for somebody to stand up here and, and to read a book and have all of these words make sense to all of us, and then be able to speak words and have words be made in my mouth and in my whatever those things are that make noises? Vocal cords, that's what, that's what they're. And then, and then have those, those sounds make sense to your ears who can hear the ears and then send the signals to your brains and interpret what I just said and have it make a sense in a thought and have you connect all of the thoughts that you're experiencing now with past thoughts of what you already know about Scripture and be able to see me. I mean, think about sight. What is that? You open your eyes and there's something that you can see all these colors and all these shapes and, and you can interpret. It's just incredible what's going on every single day in front of us. And so we might be amazed at this gate, and they call this gate beautiful. I'm telling you, the the beautiful thing in the story is the creation of God. And so we have this man sitting at the gate day after day, and his hope is that as people go into worship God, they'll remember that they have a responsibility to take care of the poor and the suffering. And so as as they leave from their sacrifices and leave from their prayers, they will give something to this man on their way out. Verse number 4. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. The word fastening his eyes there literally means gave earnestly or steadfastly. So they gazed earnestly or steadfastly at him. Now, you're going through a gate that is as wide as this church. How easy would it be to avoid somebody that's sitting on the edges? Right? I mean, there's masses of people traveling with you. It's, it's so easy, but that's not what Peter and John do. Peter and John, knowing that their pockets are empty, knowing they have nothing to give as far as what this man is looking for, find this guy, go up to him, and say, Pay attention to us. Look at me. I have something to say to you. And so this man looks at him, and what does the man expect to get? The man expects to get what he thinks he needs, right? I'm there because I need money. I need sustenance to live. And so Peter and John's response might have surprised him. Verse number 6 says, Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such I have give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter knows what this man is waiting for. He knows what the man thinks he needs. But Peter knows what the man truly needs. He says, I don't have what you're looking for, but maybe I have something a little bit better than that. I will give you what I have. Verse number seven. And he took him by the hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. I love this picture because it's not just that Peter stood back and looked at the guy and said, poof, be healed. Right? He goes up and he takes a hold of the man and he gets down and he he 
lifts the guy up because so far the guy doesn't have strength. Right? And as he lifts him up, he receives strength. As he lifts him up, the man is now able to walk and move. And so he says, receive, his bones receive strength, strength. Look at how quickly this man responds. And leaping, stood up and walked and entered with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And can I tell you something? This, this is a miracle. This is how God does miracles, right? I mean, the, the man doesn't have any muscle atrophy. This, this, this man for 40 years at least never used these, these muscles. And all of a sudden the man has strength and he's able to leap and jump and walk and rejoice. What an incredible miracle. Verse number 9. And the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. So this man, this man is leaping, he's walking, he's rejoicing, but the phrase that I actually never really caught before is that this man won't let go of Peter and John. Right? He's holding on to them, and he's not letting them go. And so these guys are all around the place. And it's not just a small distance that he won't let them go, because if this happens at the beautiful gate, and now they're at Solomon's porch, it's a long ways, about a thousand feet from those two things. And so they make their way a thousand feet across and on all of these people who are so used to seeing this man day after day after day after day sitting there begging because he has no way of walking. Now he's jumping up and leaping and praising God and holding on to these two men saying, they, they, somehow they brought the use of my legs back. They healed me. This is an incredible thing. It just, I love this picture of this man not letting them go. Verse number 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people. See, this is God orchestrating the whole event. And Peter, he finally clicks in, right? I mean, he was, he was there simply because he saw a man that needed help, and he thought, I can't help you the way you want help, but I have something I can give you. And now Peter sees that there's this massive crowd that has gathered, and it's very clear that God has just done something. And so Finally, in verse 12, Peter clicks in what's going on. So he answers unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look you so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk? Hey, folks, why do you think this is so amazing? And why do you think that somehow this is something that we did? Do you think we're powerful? Do you think that there's any type of power that, they, that Peter had? I mean, this is what he's saying, right? Do you think there's anything that I could have done in my own power to do this? Absolutely not. Do you think it's my holiness? Do you think I've lived such an impressive life that somehow I have God's favor, I've, I've, I've garnered God's favor for myself so much so that I can just, poof, make this guy to walk, and, and in my holiness I can make that happen? No way. He never wants them to mistake what God is doing with what he has done. It says, verse 13, it's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. (laughs) 
I'm not sure if you could say anything else to have a, a group of people go from, you're so amazing, to, we hate you and want to kill you. So quickly as that verse. Right? It's not us. It's not, can you imagine when he's saying this? It's Jesus Christ, whom you delivered up. You took him. He was innocent. You took him. You brought him to the Romans and denied him the presence of Pilate. As Pilate said, this man has done nothing wrong. You stood there and you yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Free Barabbas when he was determined to let him go. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And you killed the prince of life. What a phrase that is. Killed the prince or the author of life whom God raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We saw all this happen. We are eyewitnesses of these events. And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong. It wasn't us. It wasn't our power. It wasn't anything to do with us. It was faith in the name of Jesus that made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And over the next few verses, Peter goes on to deliver a powerful gospel presentation. He goes through the Old Testament. He looks at Moses. He he looks at how the Old Testament heroes pointed to one hero that would come. He saw all the prophecies and that Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies, even in specific detail. He did a wonderful job of presenting the gospel to this Jewish audience. And at the end of this whole event, 5,000 people repent and believe on Christ. See, this wasn't just Peter standing up and giving some information. It wasn't just him trying to explain theologically how this whole thing worked. Peter gets up and he preaches to them. And he commands them to repent and to put their faith in Christ. And 5,000 people do. See, this wasn't something that Peter orchestrated, right? This is something God was doing all along. And all Peter was doing was being obedient to what God told him to do. He was, he was loving people who were unlovely. He was trying to help when he saw a need. Even though he didn't even feel like he had what the guy wanted, he, he thought, maybe I have something more than what he, what he thinks he needs. But Peter here is just being obedient. The story we see in front of us is this man who's in desperate tribulation. I can't imagine for 40 years, every day, relying on people to carry you every place you need to go. There's compassion of the disciples that leads to the transformation of this man. And finally, we see how God orchestrated all of these events for the proclamation of the gospel. So, now we look to ourselves. We say, here's here's our text. Here's Peter performing a miracle. We see 5,000 people getting saved. How can an event like this possibly apply to our situation today? We don't do that, right? We don't go around telling people to to stand up. We don't see 5,000 people getting saved at once. So in our situation, for each of us, how does this thing play out? And I want to get to an application in just a moment. Before we do, I want to address the subject of miracles. I think it's a subject that is, is difficult for a lot of us, and we hear a story like this, we say, 
obviously God did something wonderful here. Why doesn't God just do that again and again and again and just let, you know, if there's people that can perform miracles, why don't we just see that happen and have the whole world get saved that way? I think we could read a passage like this and skip into a discussion about how it applies to us, but I believe that there's a danger in that. That's why I want to address this. And so I don't want us to leave confused if we jump from physical healing to spiritual healing and I don't want us to be unconvinced convinced that what we have to offer is as good as what Peter had to offer. Okay? It is. I don't want us to leave that way. So, miracles. Well, first of all, it's good to know that miracles are rare throughout redemptive history. So when we look to the, the Word of God, we see really three, three times, three generations that experienced a large group of miracles. We can look back in the Old Testament... We see when Moses was alive, there was a great number of miracles. And then we move on a little ways, I mean a long ways, and we find when Elijah and Elisha are alive, there's another great, incredible miracles. But what's interesting is outside of that, those generations, there's not that many miracles. I mean, there are a few scattered here and there, but it's not like God is just doing amazing, incredible, wondrous miracles all the time. They're kind of experiencing what, what we experience. In Israel. And then we come to the New Testament, we find it's during the inception, during the ministry of Christ and then the inception of the church, right at the beginning there, that there's incredible miracles. But even then, as we look to the epistles, it seems like those types of miracles kind of dwindle, right? When, when there are people that are in churches that are sick, Paul doesn't just command, well, just find your miracle worker and have them you know, do their stuff. There are, there are many people that are sick, even unto death, and some people that die of sickness, and, and Paul says, you, should, you know, you should pray for them, you should try and do what you can, but it's not like there's a, a special miracle thing happening. So it is fairly rare in Scripture, it's only a few generations. The second thing is, miracles are only recorded in the New Testament, per, performed by Jesus or by the apostles, and there's only two other men in the New Testament that perform miracles, and they do it in the presence of the apostles. Okay, so you got Stephen... And you have um, Barnabas, who do wonderful works, which are probably miracles. And it was in the presence of the apostles. So it seems like even the group of people that did miracles were very limited. The Old Testament, it was the, the prophets, and it was Moses and, and Joshua. And the New Testament, it's just the apostles and then a few people very close to them. The third thing is, when miracles occur in the New Testament, there is no denying it. There's no denying it, even by skeptics. When you hear what the skeptics try and say, when they try and you know, speak these miracles away, they fail miserably, and ultimately they just say, well, we don't know how it happened, we just know God did something, but it wasn't this guy, right? Or in this case, they're going to try and figure out a way, and they're going to say, they're going to talk among themselves and say, well, we actually, we can't even deny it happened because everybody knows it happened. And so it's, it's impossible to deny it by skeptics. It's demonstrable fact, there's credible witnesses, there are, there's a sensory perception, so you can either see or feel or touch or taste that a miracle took place. And there's an instantaneous effect. The fourth thing it's good to know is that miracles are rarely recorded as happening in any church. So even when they happen in the New Testament, even when they happen in the book of Acts, it's rarely in any church. So there are 20 miracles in the book of Acts. 18 of them occur outside of the church, and two of them occur in the church. 
So the only two miracles we expect to see happening in, in church service, that it was these two, Ananias and Sapphira's death. Yeah, not, not really pleasant one. Um, but it's, it was a miraculous, these people were killed on the spot. This, the second one is um, when Paul raised Eutychus back to life. And that was just kind of a, a long service gone wrong. And uh, Paul was fixing the problem. So, that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is nearly all are followed by direct preaching of the gospel or a statement in the word of God that says, because of what happened, many came to believe. And that's important too, because miracles weren't, weren't done just for the sake of the miracle. They were done because afterward there would be a presentation of the gospel. Even in this case, it seemed like Peter didn't know this was going to happen, but God's plan was that eventually Peter was going to get up and he was going to speak and, and many people were going to hear the gospel and be saved. Finally, there are many people in the New Testament in the church that are seen as sick and dead, and, and miracles is not the solution. So what I'm saying to you, why, why are we talking about this? Why go into detail about this? I want us to understand that we, we don't expect to see miracles happening like that in our day. Okay, now I'm not trying to limit what God can do. I know God is God, and God can do anything, and me standing up here saying that, that God's not doing something today if he is, is, is foolish and ridiculous. What I'm saying is it does seem like God uses miracles during very specific times in the Bible, transitional times in the Bible. Hey, this is the, the inception of the church. It is the whole world is against the church, and God is validating the, the message that the church has. So we don't expect to see miracles in that, in that same way where God is validating something new like they did then. What I'm trying to say is that there are many people that have taken advantage of our desire to see miracles like this. There are many preachers that have been, they've actually been scam artists and have, have faked things like this. And I just want us to know that if, if there are miracles that are happening in the church today, if there are miracles that are happening in the world today like this, we would know about it. It would, it would be obvious. There would be no, no way of denying it. Okay? And so I believe God has given us a commission. He's given us a job to do. It's probably a lot more important for us to worry about what we know we're supposed to do than what we wish that he was doing or what some people claim um, you know, in, in, behind closed doors what God is doing. All right? Having said all that, I believe that we are commanded when we have people that are sick, we should pray for them. We should pray that God heals them. Okay? And, and God can do that. It might not be this, this type of miraculous event, or maybe it will be, but... Um, I do think that we have a job to do. That's what we should focus on, okay? So, that's past us. Let's move on to application. How do we apply this to what, what we're going through today? And I want to see three things. I want to see what they did, what they gave, and then what Christ did. And so what did they do? In a practical sense, what Peter and John did is they found a person in need. They determined what the need was. And then they took the initiative to help them however they could. This, this is what they did. Moody said, when you accept Christ, you will have the power to confess him. And so here they see a need, and they, they, they say, I'm going to try and do whatever I can to meet the need, and God gave them the power and the ability to do something for that need when it was presented to them. That's what they did in a practical sense. So for us, we look at that and we say, you know what? How can we see needs? 
Are, are there people that are sitting by the beautiful gate that just get ignored? Are, are there Christian people that maybe walk past needs because our eyes aren't open to them? I, I'm sure. I know that happens all the time. I know it's happened in my life all the time. I thought for a while that I was just waiting for God to point his finger at somebody and say, that's the person I want you to help. That's how, kind of how I live my Christian life. What, like, if God smacks me in the face with a problem, then maybe I'll try and fix it. And I'm telling you, that's just not how the Christian life is supposed to work. We're supposed to be on mission. We're supposed to be out looking for people, right? Looking for needs that we can meet. Looking for opportunities to share the love of Christ. See, that's what they did. It wasn't that this man smacked him on the face. The man would be so easily passed by if, he, if they wanted to. And in fact, I'm sure that there are many other times they went to the temple and they did pass the same man by. And so this time they just say, God, what can you do? Oh, here he is. Let's just, let's see what we can do with this guy. There are needs, there are people in your life that have needs and you just fail to look for them. Or maybe we think they're too big for us. Or maybe we think we can't help. Or maybe we don't think we don't have the talents or the abilities. And so we just like wait for somebody else. We shouldn't. We should be looking for the needs so we can do whatever we can to meet them. That's what they did in practical sense. In the ultimate sense, what they did is they continued the work that Jesus has started. And so, yes, they had the ability to do something we can't do, but, but we are still supposed to be continuing the work that Jesus started. It's, it's for Christian people to love the unlovely, to to show grace and forgiveness and compassion on people who everybody else would write off. That is what the church is supposed to be doing, because that's what Jesus did. And so they continued his mission. That's what they did. What did they give? They gave what they had to give. So we don't have miracles to give. Now they happen to, and that's a wonderful thing, and praise the Lord that they were able to do this. But we don't. So the question is, what do we have to give? And what do we possess that could potentially help somebody else? We have time. We have talents. We have gifts that God has given us. We have resources. We have Christ. Don't, Don't we all have those things to differing degrees? Yeah, we, have, we all have time. We all have something. We have some kind of resource. We all have some t- type of talent or gift. And hopefully we all have our testimony of salvation. We all have an understanding of the gospel. Those are things that we can give, and, and those things don't have to cost a lot. right? You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to have a certain kind of gift. You just need to look and go. If we give all those other things and we fail to give people Christ, then our impact will last only one lifetime or less. But if we give Christ, eternity is changed. And so this is the thing that we we need to remember as we talk about this, because some of you might be going, yes, I know we should help people, but we got to be really careful. Social gospel is a serious serious problem. And the social gospel is just... We meet, we meet physical needs and we forget about the gospel, ultimately. And that is a danger. But that shouldn't stop us from looking for and meeting physical needs. Right? What we need to do 
is we need to just make sure our priorities are right. So we say, I'm loving this person, but I don't just love them in this life, and I don't just want them to have a better day. How can I love this person so they have a better day and I have an opportunity to share the gospel with them and I have an opportunity to, to speak to them about eternity? That's why we do what we do as Christians. There are many different aid organizations if all we're worried about is this life. So we're not. We have to say, I am meeting a need and I'm sharing Christ. And, and meeting the need without sharing Christ is really not that helpful. So we, we need to focus on sharing Christ. Some of us need to hear the, the first part. Some of us need to hear, I need to meet a need. That's, not what, I, that's what I'm not doing. And some of us, we need to hear the second part. Uh, maybe I, I'm helping people and I'm trying to meet needs, but I don't ever mo- open my mouth for Christ. What they had, they gave what they had. So time, talents, resources, Christ. You know what's amazing? Everything they gave was originally given to them. Right? Everything they gave was given to them by God. We have nothing to give that wasn't given to us. So who are we to steal this life for ourselves? All of our time, all of our resources, all of our talents, just these are mine to enjoy? No. They're there for a purpose. Uh, there's a song called, I Am a Beggar Who Gives Alms. That's where the title of the sermon came from. And I just love this song because it's very humorous in how it's written. Uh, the writers say, there are no mystic jewels embedded in my prose. Okay? There are no mystic jewels embedded in my prose. I don't even know what that means, but it's really cool. <laughs> no moonlit, haloed cherubs perched on my piano. Can you imagine, imagine that? No lyrics laced with pixie dust. No angels sing along. I am just a beggar who gives alms. Gold and silver have I none, but such I have give thee. Borrowed words from the one who gave the gift to me. The pearl that I could never buy, this life, this dream, this song. I am just a beggar who gives alms. And that's what we are. Everything we have to give was given to us. And so we must give what we have. And finally, I want us to see not just what they did and not just what they gave, but what Christ did. And if I had one word to summarize what Christ did here, it would be he blessed. He blessed what they were doing. He blessed their compassion. He blessed their willingness to love and to heal this man. He blessed their effort to share the gospel. All of the power that they had, everything that they did that was worthwhile, ultimately came from Christ. So they step out and do it. They step out and be obedient. And Christ blesses. He was pleased with Peter and John. And here we see the power of Christ on full display through them. And we've got to ask ourselves this question. How often do we see Christ's power on display in our lives? How often do we try and do something that we can't do in our own power? Because, I mean, Paul was all about weakness, right? Because in his weakness, he would be made strong. What we all want to do is we want to find a way to get rid of our weakness. We want to find a way to say, okay, I'm going to eradicate this fault in my life, and I'm going to become really gregarious and really smart, and I'm just going to be able to win people to Jesus with my awesome personality. And And when I get there, and when I have all the answers, and when I'm ready, then I'll go out and actually start doing it. That is just not his plan. He takes 
broken, weak people. He fixes the broken. He empowers the weak. He does the work through us. And so we must understand. We go, we be obedient. Christ does the work. Weakness being empowered to love and to serve more brokenness so that one day all of us... Sorry, I think I missed the first part of that quote. That is what Christianity is all about. This is what Christianity is all about. It is about weakness being empowered to love and to serve more brokenness so that one day all of us broken and weak things will praise and glorify the power and the majesty of Christ together. That's what we do. We're weak and we're broken. We find other weak and broken things. And one day, all of us come together and we praise God for his power in our lives. Christ is the one that brings beauty from ashes. Christ is the one who makes the wounded whole. He is the one who will one day restore all of creation. And In the meantime, we have this part to play. So, if you're here tonight and you consider yourself weak, you qualify. If all of us give what we have to Christ, if, if all of us will just play our part, we will see him do things that we could never do on our own. He'll transform lives. That's what's happening here. If you're a person who this evening would say, you have mystic jewels embedded in your prose, and when you play piano, you have moonlit, haloed cherubs perched on it, you're weird. <laughs> That's not true for anybody, right? There's nobody that has it all together. And what's amazing is when it seems like somebody has it all together, usually that's when it falls apart. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. In that way, every single one of us is like Peter. And every single one of us is like that beggar. And so now we are called to be, to be beggars who give alms. Right? And D.T. Niles wrote in the New York Times in 1986, Christ Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And that's what this is about. Now, some of us sit back this evening and we think, Dan, I know what you're saying. I've heard sermons like this before. But you don't understand. My life is just really boring. I mean, I, I'm you know, a stay-at-home mom. Not a whole lot that I do every day other than take care of my kids and make dinner and wash laundry and whatever. And some of us might think... Yeah, you don't get it though, Dan. I go to work every day. I have this boring job. I don't get to open the Bible and study it all the time. I don't get to prepare sermons and get excited to preach. I don't get to do some of those things that are in ministry. I'd like to, but my life is just not set up for that. My life is boring, right? Can I tell you something? You rub shoulders with people that we'll never see. You rub shoulders with people that have serious needs. Every day, you rub shoulders with people who need Christ. And so how often do you step out and try and give them what you have? You're a parent, stay-at-home mom. You have kids that are going to grow up and they're going to influence people. And you have this opportunity to pour your life into them. So how often are you giving them what you have, giving them what you know of Christ? There is no boring unimportant job in the church, in the Christian life. 
all of us are called to give what we have for Christ. I know this is a common theme. I know this message of, it doesn't matter, you're weak, you should go out and serve. I mean, it's almost like this is what preachers say because we think everybody else is weak. And that's, it's not the case. I'm not saying this because I think somehow we are better. I'm saying because we're not. We're all in the same boat. This church doesn't function with a couple people doing stuff. This church functions properly when all of us step up and use what we have for Christ. And so that's a call on every single life here. And not one call is more important than another. Ed Welch said, God is pleased to use ordinary people in ordinary conversations to do most of the heavy lifting in his kingdom. That's true. For you, it might not be one special event, and there probably won't be a time where we see 5,000 people come to Christ at once. It will be a series of ordinary events, ordinary days. And in the ordinary, we must learn to follow our Savior and be his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece to the world around us. We have seen Peter fail over and over and over again. And I, I believe if we look at our lives, we'd probably say, I'm just like Peter. The story of my life is, is many times a story of failure. But it's wonderful here to see a story where God is working through a person who has failed as dramatically as Peter. I hope we don't miss that the hero here in this story is Jesus Christ. That Peter is the ordinary guy who failed and got back up and tried to do something. And I hope we don't miss that, that we have the same Savior. Right? And if we'll just get up and, and say, Lord, I know I failed, but help me in the future. He will do wonderful things in and through our lives as well. Let's pray.